0: So glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Janet McCalman about sex and suffering. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. Uh, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Well, I'm I'm a social
1: historian, and uh, I've been writing now for quite a long time. Since I'm getting old, and I've retired. Um, doing history from below is what we call it. Um, but also in my teaching, when I became started teaching at Melbourne University, also doing ecological history and interdisciplinary history. But I've got done a lot of health history, which started with this book, which was a commission. The Hosp- Women's Hospital Board wanted a history done. Um, the chair at the time has a, was an honours history graduate, and she wanted. a a proper history of it done. And the thing that made it um, different and and not just a history that was going to say nice things about board members and the people who were stuffy in the community, what made a different opportunity was that an enormous number of patient records had survived from the middle of the 19th century. So they had these extraordinary archives which were stored in a shed on the roof of one of the buildings with a a hole in the door. Um, And uh, so they had to be rescued and cleaned. Um, And they included midwifery books, which said that every birth at the women's hospital has always been properly recorded since 1856. Um, And then from the early 1880s, there were gynaecological case records. Um, Now, I didn't use those and I didn't use records that I could look at beyond the restriction on privacy, which is about 100 years. So I had access to that for the 19th century. And what it made me realize was that I could write a history of the hospital that was really about the patients and about their lives and about what happened to women's bodies. Um, as well as what the work the hospital did. So that's where it's different from an ordinary ma- uh, hospital history that's commissioned by the Board
0: of Management. Yeah, well that, I, was, I was actually going to ask you what inspired you to write the book, but you've, you've sort of answered that question. So um, could you explain about Tracy's Hospital?
1: Well, the founders of the hospital were... First of all, the wife of the Archbishop of Melbourne, uh, Mrs Perry, and the Francis Perry wing of the hospital commemorates her. And she came together with two fairly newly arrived doctors. Now, they're part of this flood of people who came in the gold rush and which really what shaped Victoria for the next 100 years. So Victoria was different from the other colonies, in that it was um, peopled first, particularly in this big founding population were all people who'd paid their own way to get here. They weren't convicts or they weren't uh, subsidized free uh, immigrants. So it was the most literate place in the British empire. And a lot of, in in Scotland and Ireland, there are a lot of doctors who are very well trained and didn't have much capital and the profession was overcrowded. So they saw a chance, maybe to get some gold, but certainly to be part of a, a new society. So these two brilliant young doctors had, co- had come to Melbourne. One was John Maund, um, and he came principally because he had tuberculosis. And that was the other reason that all sorts of very talented people, excluding a lot of doctors, Uh, emigrated to Victoria because they had TB the other man Richard Tracy was Irish Um, he'd been a a medical student during the famine he worked in a fever hospital as a wardsman that is a male nurse he'd got typhus and nearly died Um, he then when he graduated in Ireland went to Paris as did John Maund which is where they did their the most advanced postgraduate training in medicine was happening. And that's where they particularly learned about doing careful record keeping of patients and observation of illness, which is what you could do in what was called a charity hospital. I'll explain that in a minute. So Tracy... was trying to work at what but he then he went back to he went to Scotland and he ran a cholera hospital. So the cholera was the the pandemic of the 19th century. Uh, It was highly contagious and had to be managed with very careful uh, sanitation rules. They didn't understand germ theory, but they understood contagion uh, that you could catch things from the environment. And so uh, the management of cholera hospitals became very strict and specialised. And then he was blocked. where He didn't have the money to sit up and practise, So, and he was very, very clever. So he tossed a coin. Would he go into the army and become an army doctor, or would he go to Australia? And Australia won, and he started off in Adelaide. And when the gold rush got going and nearly everybody left Adelaide, um, he came over to the gold rush and found that it was not his cup of tea and he could make do much better if he set up as a doctor. Now, the three of them got together because they were concerned about all the women being deserted from the gold fields and the gold diggers or being abandoned um, or single mothers. Um, and they needed and they didn't have safe homes in which to give birth because women nearly always gave birth in their own home and did so until, really until the Second World War. Um, so uh, very few went into a little private hospital, which might just have three beds. And the vision was to set up in Melbourne uh, an equivalent lying in hospital to that in Dublin, which was the one known as the Rotunda. There's one in Edinburgh, one in Glasgow, and there was one in East London. And these were charity hospitals, like the Melbourne Hospital was, which is that patients got treatment for free uh, and they were sponsored by subscribers and people would recommend them as being in need. And the idea was to provide medical care and in childbirth before and after birth uh, for quite long periods, in fact, uh, and also to treat the illnesses, as they said Peculiar to women and children, um, for nothing, for for, for paying fees. And the doctors would donate their services um, and they would have some nurses employed. Now, the model of that, the charity hospital where patients were treated for free, then moved into when there were medical schools that they became the teaching hospitals And the sort of what's called a a gift relationship, the moral gift understanding was that, and it's still the case, when you go into the Royal Melbourne Hospital or the Royal Women's as a public patient, you are now asked for your consent, but it is expected that you, as a case, will be available for teaching. Um, And so I... You know, I was in the Royal Melbourne 10 years ago in extremely ill state and about a great tribe of people were at the bottom of my bed and there was four different departments and presiding over them all the back like a, a, a maestro conducting an orchestra was the professor. And that's the model that we train our doctors and our nurses in hospitals where the gift relationship is the patient's body um and they what you get in exchange is free treatment so the women's hospital was known as the lying in hospital where lying in was giving birth and an infirmary or hospital for the diseases peculiar to women and children and dr maund died after a few years from his tuberculosis so tracy was the one running it but he also was the one with more energy and um, he's fitter. And he designed it. He built, he did design the hospital to his own. Uh, He did the architecture. And he designed it very much in mind of what he'd seen, not only in Paris, but particularly in in the famine famines, the famine uh, epidemics of, of typhus and in cholera hospitals. So it was designed so that every woman was delivered in a room of her own, and these are poor patients with nothing, but delivered in a room of her own and kept isolated there for 13 days until they were sure she didn't wasn't infected and then she could go on to the recovery ward. Now, the women used to feel very lonely, but it's better to be lonely than to be sick, as we've all just discovered in the last few months. Uh, so, um, therefore... Uh, this was a, a radical thing to do. And he was an extraordinarily gifted surgeon who was learning and doing all sorts of very difficult operations by reading about them and getting advice by letter from London. So Tracy's Hospital soon got overwhelmed with increasing patients. So they, they weren't able to control things as well as they could at the start because you know the hospital was never big enough. Um, And Melbourne was growing rapidly and the number of women in need and one of the critical things they did, unlike what they did in England or Scotland, was that they admitted single mothers. Whereas in England, they didn't like having single mothers, because they were usually bad sorts, they thought, they might be prostitutes. Well, the women's hospital here, the lying-in Hospital admitted all women, including prostitutes. and would often protect their privacy and not let on that they were single. Um, And uh, about half the women who went through the hospital were unmarried mothers. Uh, And and then another lot would have been deserted women. Um, So they're what I call unsupported women. They've got no family or household or husband or father or brother to provide an income while they're caring for a baby. And the consequence of that was very high infant mortality once they left the hospital.
0: Gee, that's, that's but, quite, quite amazing for the time, wasn't it?
1: Well, they were ahead of their time, but um, it was more that they made the history happen for themselves. That face, took the initiative. He had the support of Francis Perry and other Anglican ladies who were um, wives of clergymen and so on. Now, they often were a little bit more censorious and they also didn't like priests coming in to give the last rites because, you know, they might convert all the other patients. Um, So there's a bit of tension around religion. But Tracy was an Irish Protestant, but he was very tolerant. And what was... I think came through in the way he wrote up his cases and the stories he told about patients was that he really loved women. He really cared about women and cared about their welfare because the awful reality is that when women don't get skilled care, both in pregnancy and childbirth, the results are shocking. So, still in the world today you know we can look at maternal death and it's still a very serious problem around the world but even more serious in a way is maternal morbidity sickness after delivery Um, and I remember seeing a study and I haven't been able to find it again but it was from India where um, 87 percent of women were suffering post post, uh, postpartum illness and that would be chronic infection, uh, birth injuries that not healed. Um, And so there's a huge burden of morbidity that women suffer that we tend to not know about. We don't measure it very well. Uh, It doesn't get measured properly in the world, but it's a constant um, handicap and disability for women that they're particularly in countries where they have to work physically that they've got chronic pain, they've got um, prolapses that so they can't walk properly, uh, they've got infections which weaken them, they might make them sterile, but they, those infections are constantly weakening and weakening their immune system. Uh, so childbirth for women, as is parturition for cows, particularly hazardous because of our, our biology, our, our skeletons, the shape, the size of our hips and pelvic area. Um, and uh, it's still today, only about 60% of deliveries are unproblematic and need no intervention. So the care of women in childbirth, particularly if they're poor, particularly if they're already in bad health, particularly if they're already sick, particularly if they've had already had lots and lots of children, uh, is crucial in saving their lives. And you can see coming through in someone like Tracy, real feeling for women um, and feeling for their things. So one of his stories about using chloroform and he was eager to try anything that would make childbirth easier for women. So he proclaimed that chloroform was a miracle. It should be used at every birth. It was the first thing since the old, since God in the garden of Eden cursed Eve with the burden of pain of childbirth to give women the freedom of of the pain of childbirth the problem is women died under chloroform so it was very tricky to administer but the first woman he gave it to was a young Irish woman unmarried who had got into heavy labor and was completely out of control so you couldn't hold her down she was screaming she was thrashing about putting her baby at risk and the description of being able to Put her out of her consciousness and her pain to deliver the baby which was dead by then and he wrote and when she came when she was returned to us she said she'd been dreaming of ireland and it's just a lovely touch you know, lovely. that yeah. she would have identified with so that's tracy but if you want to know what happens from then on uh He died and, and, you know, there were a lot of doctors around him who were very equally very committed. And one of the really important things they did was in 1862, which is before Florence Nightingale started nursing colleges, um, they started training midwives and nurses. Uh, Because, in fact, normal deliveries were always conducted by the midwives, and they still are. Uh, and always have been, um, and doctor, the doctor is called in if there's a complication. Um, and so uh, they began training midwives and women had to pay to be trained if they got a certificate and they could go out and become a, a registered mid, they were had a certificate and they could practice as an independent practitioner. Uh, so they start training nurses and they start managing their nurses much more carefully because up till then, if you remember Dickens and Mrs. Gamp, nursing was a dirty job. It was considered only suitable for women of the very rough kind. Um, and um, it, they, a lot of them were drunks. Uh, so one of the, the tricks was you didn't pay nurses or you paid them so little that they had to be supported by their fathers. And that made sure you got ladies, you see. Oh.
0: <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> Industrial relations in the 19th century. <laughs> The story changes with science because um, this is collapsing things a bit, but they had periods where they had a lot of deaths and a lot of infection. And it's not till the 1880s, early 1880s, that germ theory began to be understood and accepted uh, uh, around the, the world. And one of the young resident medical officers he was very smart, very bright. He uh, was trying to convince these old consultants that they should start cleaning up their act and practice what called antiseptic midwifery, which means they had to clean the patient, keep keep all their instruments clean, not reuse things like sponges, um, change the bedding, wash nurses and doctors, wash hands of everybody, etc. Um, and what he did was to do 100 consecutive cases in the midwifery book where he recorded every complication, including the temperatures. And out of that 100, seven women died and um, less than 10 were discharged well without a continuing infection and temperature. So that's how septic, that's how full of germs the hospital had become. Now, the head consultant's solution to this was that they're admitting the wrong patients. If they admitted a better class of patient, they wouldn't be so sick. (laughs) So no, that's not the solution. (laughs) And so um, he, this young doctor um, was, his name was Adam um, was to was to do, do this data and then present it to the doctors and say this is what's happening and they agreed and they adopted antiseptic midwifery and the death rates fell like that and particularly for the babies because the mothers were discharged in healthier condition more likely to be able to breastfeed at least for a while and that the babies had a better chance so So this germ theory made and and medical progress has made a huge difference to women. It's one of the areas where while we've had a narrative, a feminist narrative about men taking over women's business and um, using women and using their bodies for their careers, et cetera, in fact, the other side of the story is that advances in medical understanding of childbirth, of anatomy, of of the processes of labor, that in fact, things needed to be, nature needed to be allowed to take her course, et cetera, et cetera, um, has actually helped women and medical intervention has saved millions of lives, both of mums and babies. But what happened with germ theory, and this is something that happened around the world, is that suddenly... The people who carried germs became dangerous and you see a hardening of class attitudes towards the poor, towards people of colour. They become reservoirs of disease, they are dangerous, it's probably their fault, they don't wash enough etc etc. So there's a hardening of attitudes that comes with with germ theory and very much gets bound up, particularly in the United States with race and race theory. So in that way, science actually set us backward um, because uh, you could blame someone. If it was the miasmas, if it was these germs were coming in the atmosphere, well, you know, like COVID actually does, um, then you could blame the bad smells and bad sanitation. But when the germs are in the body of the person lying in the bed before you, they become a danger. So um, therefore, what we see is also that the hospitals get on a military footing, that they be, are now got to fight this enemy, the germ, and particularly it's nursing that takes this challenge. And over the next 20th century, a lot of the matrons and senior nurses in the women's hospital actually also been in the army. So what you get is this sort of military super vigilant discipline, which they in fact needed to do because everything had to be cleaned. Um, and young nurses did all sorts of stuff like washing the floors with tea leaves and everything had to be or everything had to be sterilised, they didn't have the sterilising equipment they have now. They didn't have plastics that you could dispose of of catheters and um, syringes. They all had to be sterilised. And the slightest slip up, and there'd be a disaster. So the hospitals become highly disciplined and therefore rather hard places. Um, And that keeps going through the 20th century through the depression when their funding really collapsed um, and they've got a caseload of very sick women um, and particularly a big increase from the 1890s of women terminating pregnancies themselves and so producing what's known as a septic abortion where they get a terrible infection. And Melbourne was particularly unfortunate that there was a a bacterium. Uh, called uh, Clostridium welshii, which was in our environment and, and in faeces, um, and which mutated to being exceptionally virulent. And if women got that, particularly from being careless when they wiped their bottom, but more commonly from being, um, giving a, trying to, to get rid of a pregnancy by using an instrument known as the Higginson syringe, which had become available in the 1890s and was also used for enemas, it was rubber tubes. Every household had one, hanging over a rusty nail in the bath, in the background toilet, never sterilised, getting cracks that would inject fecal matter into the uterus and they'd get gas gangrene of the uterus and they could die very fast. Now, that happened at, at the women's house, and at the stench, in the ward was overwhelming and anyone who went through the hospital as a nurse trainee or a trainee doctor was profoundly affected by that and it shifted the medical profession in Melbourne who are Protestant to supporting termination of abortion long before the rest of the community because they were so horrified by the, by the suffering that this caused because these were desperate women. They were mostly married women with, two, with children they couldn't, and they couldn't afford another. They mostly performed these operations on themselves or it was done by their sister or their auntie. Some of them were going to backyard abortionists. So that was another very big turning point in the hospital's history. And they began to do extraordinary laboratory work in being able to identify the bug very quickly, that the nurses even did the pathology at the bedside and that, so that it was done fast because the sooner they got a definite diagnosis that it was this Trichostium welshii, that that's when they had to do a complete hysterectomy, and that was the only way to save the woman's life. So this is really horror emergency medicine, and it brought the people who worked into the hospital slap banger against the poverty of the slums, and if they the medical students used to have to go out and do home births under the direction of the district nurses, and they used to write these adventures up, and suddenly they're seeing real poverty, houses with dirt floors, homes where there's only one cup. So the the medical student gets a cup of tea and then that has to be washed for someone else to have a cup of tea. Um, places where the whole family of parents, a grandparent and four children were all sleeping in the same double bed and the fleas could be seen jumping up from the bedclothing. Now, this is 1930s Paran. Uh, These things had a profound effect on the medical profession and a profound effect on those who particularly dedicated their lives to looking after women. Um, And so there's an ethic in the hospital, even though it was pretty rough, um, of being on the women's side and being on the side of poor women. Um, And by the time Second wave Feminism came, that had shifted public values. The, The board of the hospital, which was mostly lay women, were themselves affected by it. Um, And so that's when they began to give patients a lot more freedom and autonomy and start to think about birth centres and more patient-centred care. But
0: Yeah, no, it was certainly a pretty gruesome time. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. All right. Um, So there is progress in the world? Yes, yeah, there certainly is. And I've been speaking with Professor Janet McCallman. Uh, about sex and suffering. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.